Exposure to lead can be dangerous, especially for our children. In the state of Wisconsin, approximately 5% of our children who are tested have elevated lead levels. Here in the Milwaukee community, double that. Posing a serious public health threat. We know that even a small amount can have detrimental effects for the future of a community, a family, and even for an individual child. And leading to efforts to mitigate risk for our families. The ultimate goal is zero lead in all people. We're focusing on pediatric lead exposure and lead poisoning. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. The purpose of today's show is not to alarm you, but to alert you to a potential health risk that could be present right in your own home. It's a particular risk for children, one that could impact both their physical and cognitive developmental growth, even leading to future negative outcomes. We're talking about exposure to lead, often leading to lead poisoning. Dr. Heather Parody is a pediatrician and medical director of community services at Children's Wisconsin, who tells us when it comes to children and lead poisoning. I often refer to pediatric lead poisoning as a silent epidemic. It is often unknown until we discover it at a routine checkup, and we know exposure during childhood can lead to adverse outcomes potentially for life. But it's a silent epidemic that has a significant presence in our state and in our community. In the state of Wisconsin, approximately 5% of our children who are tested are considered to have elevated lead levels. Here in the Milwaukee community, we see rates that are approximately double that. So around 10% of children are lead poisoned. And as you dive deeper into the numbers, the epidemic becomes even more concerning. There are some areas of the city that have rates as high as 15 to 20%. Dr. Parody adds that there's specific populations within our community at increased risk. These include children who live in poverty, those who are insured by Medicaid or who obtain services through the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, any child living in housing that was built before lead was taken out of our paint, and use of certain foods or substances that may contain lead. What's interesting is that on a national level, we've made progress. When you look long term at pediatric lead poisoning over the past several decades. 
we have made remarkable strides in our country with lowering the rates. What accounts for that? Largely legislation that removed lead from gasoline, paint that we use in our homes, and placed regulations on levels of lead considered acceptable in our air and in our water and in our soil. So in recent years, across our country... We have seen a dramatic decrease in both the average blood lead level for children in the United States, as well as the percentage of children who are considered to be lead poisoned. Then, is the incidence rate of lead poisoning in children higher in our community than in other cities throughout the U.S.? Milwaukee's rates of lead poisoning are relatively similar to other large cities around the Great Lakes, like Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, and Rochester, New York. Also, cities which tend to have higher rates of pediatric lead poisoning than other parts of the country. What about globally? How do we compare with the rest of the world? What has been a success has been organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency and the Centers for Disease Control to really be able to address the issue of pediatric lead poisoning. That is not the case worldwide. You may be wondering... What is a normal or acceptable blood lead level? Turns out... There is no normal level of lead. Lead doesn't get in our body naturally. And so any lead that we do have that shows up in our body or in our blood has gotten there because of some sort of contamination in our environment. Again, for emphasis... There is absolutely no known safe level of lead in our body. But if zero lead is acceptable, what constitutes an elevated blood lead level? The CDC defines an elevated blood lead level as anything above 5 micrograms per deciliter. And they actually used to term it a level of concern, and the level was higher. It was at 10. And in 2012, they both changed that nomenclature from level of concern to reference level, and they lowered the level from 10 to 5 because there really is no safe level. But having the reference level set at 5 micrograms per deciliter sets the bar for where public health or other medical interventions might occur. She further explains how this reference level is determined. The reference level is determined by population level surveillance. There's a national data set called the NHANES. It uses survey data collection of flood and other measurements from individuals across the country. They use the blood data to determine what level of blood lead is two standard deviations above the norm. So it means two and a half percent will have blood levels above five. However, blood lead levels in children with lead poisoning can be much higher. The vast majority of children will be five to ten micrograms per deciliter. There will be other from 10 to 20, and then there will be children that are above 20. For children who have lead levels, 40 to 45 or higher, those are children who we are admitting to the hospital. By the way, it's not just kids. Adults can be exposed to lead as well. Absolutely, adults can become exposed to lead, often exposed through either occupational exposures or from hobbies. For instance, individuals who work in battery smelting facilities or who work at or frequent shooting ranges may be exposed to lead. But lead exposure is different 
for a young child because... When children are exposed to lead, it's at their most susceptible time in terms of growth and development. Those first years are when our bodies and brains are expanding in exponential ways. Which is why exposure to lead during early childhood can lead to chronic lifelong issues including negative impacts on physical development. The physical effects can include things like growth failure. It affects multiple organ systems, the kidneys, the heart, the endocrine system. Cognitive development. It does have measurable effects on cognition. Specifically, IQ points decrease with every elevation in blood lead levels. We also know that at a population level, these IQ deficits can have major effects on our school systems. And behavioral development. Lead poisoning has been shown to have behavioral effects such as hyperactivity and impulsivity, even leading to criminal types of behaviors and certain types of personality traits or disorders. Making the focus, once exposed, to try and reduce the long-term impacts of lead poisoning. For most of our pediatric lead poisoning cases, once we detect an elevated level, it's a matter of following that child over time to ensure that once they are in a lead-free environment, that level starts to naturally decrease. Are there common symptoms parents can watch for if they're concerned a child may have been exposed to lead? Yeah, that's why I call it a silent epidemic, because oftentimes there is no sign. So it's really important for parents to be cued in to what some of those environmental conditions are, and anytime they have a concern about lead, requesting testing for their child. Speaking of lead testing... Thankfully... Testing has become a really routine part of checkups during the early years of life. It is recommended all children receive lead testing at age one and then again at age two years old. And for kids at higher risk... Even more frequent, so testing annually up until school entry may be additional recommendations. As a pediatrician, Dr. Parody knows the key role of primary prevention to reduce lead exposure, including educating parents. When they are newly parenting and when they are pregnant or may become pregnant, those are prime opportunities to start conversations about lead poisoning and risk for lead in the environment as well as a pediatrician's role in secondary prevention. Recognize risk, test, and intervene. Things like nutritional counseling and assessment of growth and development so that we have all of that wonderful stimulation that happens in early childhood and kids' brains grow to their fullest potential. And in addition to pediatric primary care... We've got groups coming together to really focus around lead poisoning in our community. Medical, health professionals, public health, community organizations, and others who are passionate about this. So I really think there is collective momentum around this issue. We'll learn about one such effort later on today's show. But before we get to that, since we're talking about lead poisoning, it's important to gain perspective on lead exposure from a poison expert. Dr. Jillian Theobald is an associate professor, Department of Emergency Medicine 
at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Associate Medical Director of the Wisconsin Poison Center. The Wisconsin Poison Center helps prevent poisonings and then take care of patients who have been poisoned. So we assist people from home. We help them determine if they need to go into the emergency department or that we can monitor them at home. We also help healthcare providers. We provide expert consultation to them. And they're visible in our communities. We also do a lot of education throughout the state of Wisconsin, making sure that people know what's poisonous and what isn't. So we do a lot of education out within the communities. All with a mission to provide the residents of the state of Wisconsin with the best care when they do get exposed to substances that could potentially be toxic. How commonly is the Wisconsin Poison Center involved with cases of lead poisoning? frequent poisoning or exposure that we help providers take care of patients for. So it's a very important issue because we know that even a small amount can have detrimental effects for the future of a community, a family, and even for an individual child. Dr. Theobald gives some examples of the Poison Center's interaction and involvement with cases of lead poisoning. Often will help primary care providers in community clinics with follow-up from kids who are lead poisoned and help when patients get admitted to Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. The physicians that staff the Poison Center also do inpatient consults there. And for cases in other communities throughout Wisconsin. If kids get admitted to other hospitals throughout the state and a physician has a management question for us, they can call us at any time and we will help them with determining the best treatment for that child. She adds that because lead exposure is happening in the home, caused by the home. One of the biggest reasons why kids end up getting admitted to the hospital is to get them out of the environment that they're in to prevent re-exposure. So that's really the number one treatment for lead poisoning is to make sure that kids aren't getting re-exposed. So either removing the source from them or removing them from the source and putting them into the hospital. And that gives us time to go and examine the home and remediate it. And in cases where a child's blood lead level is high enough, treat them and get some of that lead out of their system. We know that lead levels of 8 or 10 are pretty detrimental, but our threshold for treatment is in the mid-40s for these kids. And so we'll get called to help determine, does this kid need oral chelation or do they need IV chelation with medications that are a little bit stronger and more aggressive treatment? Next, Dr. Theobald shares insight on major sources for elevated blood lead levels in children. Leaded paint is the primary source of lead poisoning that we typically deal with. Paint coming around windowsills where it's chipping off and that is one of the biggest exposures when kids are chewing on things that have the leaded paint within them. Some less common, though no less concerning sources, include If you have a lead service line coming off the main line of water and into your home, lead present in some spices, some candies, and makeups that aren't manufactured in the U.S., although those are much less likely to cause issues than the paint chips and service lines for water. Since no lead in our body is safe, the best primary prevention for lead poisoning is preventing lead exposure. Think about where does your child spend time? Like knowing, oh, hey, I live in an older home, or my kid goes to an in-home daycare that's in an older home. Knowing the risk factors for lead exposure is going to be really important so that you can be proactive and cognizant about where your child is spending time and making sure that they're not getting exposed to lead. So the primary prevention is really going to be preventing exposure. 
And when a child is at risk or has been exposed to lead, measures to mitigate lead poisoning, including lead testing. There are a couple of ways to test. One of them is capillary testing, kind of like when people check their blood sugar or they prick the end of their finger and squeeze it out. It is not as accurate as getting a venous sample where they insert a needle and draw your blood from a larger vein to determine blood blood level. At what age is it most typical for children to be tested for lead? Usually anywhere between 12 and 18 months because that's when most kids get mobile, moving around, pulling themselves up on things, walking, more than crawling. That's also when they have that hand-mouth behavior. I'm a mom of four kids and my kids put all sorts of stuff in their mouth when they were younger. And in terms of a kid's development, that is the most important time where they may be getting exposed to lead. In addition to a child's age, risk factors relative to where a child lives determine how frequently they're tested. There are clear recommendations throughout the state for primary care providers for testing kids for lead. Part of that is based on where people live. People living in older homes, there's recommendations that those people get tested more frequently. If you live in Milwaukee or Racine counties, your frequency may be higher than if you lived in other parts of the state. Or if you have risk factors like your child goes to daycare in an older home, those people would need to get tested more frequently. Dr. Theobald recognizes there are robust local and statewide public health efforts to mitigate lead exposures. The public health departments do follow this pretty carefully because we know how detrimental lead poisoning can be to a community. But she says, in many respects, there aren't enough resources to eliminate lead exposures. You know, there's never enough when you feel strongly about a certain poisoning or public health risk. And public health is always underfunded for all the things they are tasked with doing. And so I don't think that there's enough. As we'll discover next, a newly created program is hoping to make a significant impact. First, Dr. Theobald says there are resources available for parents to protect their kids from lead poisoning. The Wisconsin Department of Public Health and the Milwaukee County Health Department have wonderful resources that parents or healthcare providers can access to educate or for testing or remediation. All of those are put onto the website for those health departments. And, of course, there's the Wisconsin Poison Center. We have a toll-free number, 1-800-222-1222. And so if there's any questions that anybody has, please call us. That's what we're here for. We're available 24-7. In an effort to better fight against lead exposure and lead poisoning, a new program has been launched on a grant from the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Dr. David Nelson is an associate professor, Department of Family Medicine, Division of Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and principal investigator of the Clinical and Community Solutions to Lead-Free Children program. We are very fortunate that our group received the grant to study the issue of lead and lead exposure in our clinical partners and community. And he explains exactly what this program is all about. What we're doing is initiating a quality improvement process within pediatrics and within family medicine to best determine how we're doing getting kids tested. And when there is an elevated lead screening, we're looking at what happens in real time at all levels, from families who are impacted to the medical enterprise. As you can imagine, 
A program of this size and scope involves multiple partners. Naturally, we're working with the Medical College of Wisconsin, Department of Family and Community Medicine, Pediatrics Department, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, the Institute for Health and Equity, Children's Health Alliance, Social Development Commission, Poison Control, the City of Milwaukee Health Department. And between these partners, there's many roles. Everyone working together, sharing expertise, ideas, and understanding. Being able to discuss this in a way that's understood by the families, working with clinical partners to stress not only the importance of doing the testing, but to do so in a way that's based upon best evidence. When we have a child who screens for high levels of lead, to make that connection with the health department and with the community, and then how does that information get brought back to the clinical enterprise? We want to ensure that it is happening in a consistent way that really can make a difference. There's also partners involved on a national level. Dr. Heather Parity came from the University of Rochester, where they've done some amazing work around lead and lead policy. So we're working with the University of Rochester and the City of Rochester, as well as Notre Dame University, because they're doing some interesting work to encapsulate and then mitigate lead. What's the main goal of the program? Dr. Nelson says it's twofold. First, to better understand the processes that we might share across medical environments and to really look at what the processes are within the community so we might better connect the community to the clinic and the clinic to the community, which needs to happen at a more robust level to have more people involved. And second, we're working with a group called the Coalition on Lead Emergency, COAL. They are a community grassroots organization. It's imperative that we get to the level of working with and alongside the community to both understand the issue and what we do from the perspective of the community. As we've learned, lead exposure can come from a number of sources. Dr. Nelson says, specifically in our community, water, for example, in the lead ladders and the lead solder. Also, paint in older homes if there are lead chips off the wall. If there is a rubbing of the windows, dust gets in the air from just the rubbing alone. We're determining not only where that exposure is coming from, but how we can respond to that. The issue of lead poisoning disproportionately impacts underrepresented minority and economically challenged populations. This factors into how the program approaches helping these communities. We talk about the idea of trust building. Trust building really is building relationships. And so we are striving to let families tell their stories and to give support where they need it as they see it. So we really have to go slow because we only move at the speed of trust. After all, while he can empathize with families dealing with lead exposure, he hasn't lived their reality. I grew up in the 60s, so I'm sure that I was exposed to lead. But we had the ability to move around to a different environment. Many of our parents that we're working with in this situation have fewer options than many of us. So you can't just say to a parent, I need you to move because your child tests for lead. And there are stigmas parents face. You know, how could you do this to your child if they have an eviction on their record or if they're concerned about a retaliatory eviction from a landlord, which does happen, they're often going to be reluctant to say anything. At the same time, there are real issues that must be addressed when a child does test positive for lead exposure. 
having alignment and all people working together on this. One, to know how the lead is impacting the children and the families, but two, that what can our response be from the multiple organizations. And so what we're trying to do is to understand where we might provide more resources in order to support families that are dealing with this issue. It's a delicate balance, one that Dr. Nelson says requires a holistic approach to achieve. Look at things from a social ecological perspective. Multiple individuals and organizations interconnected with each other. So there is a response from the individual within the family, from the families as they intersect with a variety of organizations, whether it be healthcare, education, even faith based organizations. But a holistic approach must extend beyond individuals and families. We also have to think about this from the community city and even the state level. We need to change some policies to eradicate the issue, and that's going to take resources. And if we don't do this, who will? So the longer we sit on this, the more we're putting children at risk. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has impacted public health in many ways, including lead exposure and lead testing. We know that during the pandemic, parents weren't taking their children to pediatricians as well as to family medicine. So the number of children that were getting tested for lead exposure was not happening. We also think that we're not seeing the breadth and the depth of this as we might With the coming of fall and a return to school classrooms, that's likely to change. Children were home longer. When you're at school, you're not potentially ingesting the lead. When testing happens in the fall, we're going to hypothesize that our numbers of lead-exposed children will go up as children come back to school. While the issue of lead exposure is complex, the ultimate goal is simple. The ultimate goal, Brian, is zero lead in all people. Any lead above zero is not a level we want. However, in practicality and reality, lead exposure and lead poisoning won't go away easily or soon enough. Though there are fewer children that are poisoned, there's still children that are poisoned, most likely to be children of color, low income. And so what we need to do is continue to build that awareness, not only with parents and families, but with the clinical team, as well as the legislators to say, what more can we do to keep all of our families safe? And not just families in our local community. This is for all of the people of Wisconsin. It will be interesting to see if people become aware of this and then suddenly we're looking at lead, for example, in Eau Claire or in La Crosse or in Green Bay and what we can do to support the eradication of this issue. How is the program being funded? Our group received an Advancing a Healthy Wisconsin Endowment Population Health Grant, a three-year grant but this is a project that we're going to take forward beyond the three years to test some interventions around communication and around how we strengthen the process between clinical and the community. Because it's needed and it's the right thing to do. This continues to be a community health issue. It has a clinical component, it has a scientific component, and a community component. This is the right topic to be studied at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and I'm grateful for the support in order to better understand and do something about this. Now and in the future. This really is translational science from the genetic and cellular level of how lead impacts cells 
to the population and everywhere in between. And so we're grateful for the CTSI and the support that they give us, as well as what it may mean for research that will help us translate these ideas into practices that will benefit the community in the long run. Because everyone working together can make a difference. We need to work in hope. And I think when we remain steadfast and we remain committed to this, we can make progress. It's never quite fast enough, but if we don't finish it in this generation, we certainly are going to leave something positive for the next generation to capitalize on. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests. Dr. Heather Parody, Dr. Jillian Theobald, and Dr. David Nelson. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.